Welcome to the Happy Pair Podcast, where our ultimate goal is to inspire, educate, and awaken your curiosity, and overall, to help you to become healthier and happier. We're Dave and Steve, identical twins who started a veg shop nearly 20 years ago. Since then, it's expanded into a social following of over one and a half million people, nearly 50 million views of our videos, nearly half a million books sold, cafes, farms, apps, courses, food products to help you to eat more veg. We speak to thought leaders, health experts, trailblazers and specialists of all kinds, from the ones you know to those you've never, ever heard of. This week's podcast is sponsored by Vivo Barefoot Shoes. We've been wearing them for six years and genuinely they are our favourite shoes and that is all we wear beyond being barefoot. So if you're interested, vivobarefoot.com and the code is happypair15. Great. How was your recent trip, your tour? I was reading there recently about your um, tour around Holland and Netherlands out promoting, you know, veganism and animal rights. It was great. Yeah, it was, It was, It went really well. Um, I mean, the Netherlands is a pretty receptive place. So it was It was very comfortable but it was also really really fun and um, and enjoyable and, and actually I, I haven't been to Amsterdam in a number of years but the vegan food there is really tremendous I was so impressed great yeah. variety really yeah. great variety and yeah being a, being a country yeah. that espouses the alternative so well there's huge <laughs> offerings first thing I'd love to jump into you is about Harvard you you lectured in Harvard you are a Harvard fellow which I think is right. absolutely amazing so can you tell us about that I'm fascinated and I'd love to hear all about it yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so there's a, a professor there called uh, Dr. Sparsha Saha, who's a, a passionate vegan, um, and she does some courses there related to food and ethics um, and policy making in in, um, in governments. And so her and I have had a relationship for a couple of years, a working relationship where I've done a few different talks online, virtual presentations, and we basically discussed sort of uh, about 18 months ago the prospect of me coming in and doing something a little bit more full-on in person at Harvard. So we put our heads together and came up with kind of like a um, a course that would run alongside one of the courses that she was running related to animal ethics and, and food choices. Um, and so I did six sessions with students, uh, about 100 or so different students who were uh, looking to learn about veganism and importantly, I suppose, how to communicate veganism and how to engage with these issues and how to present these issues because a lot of the work they have to do is not just about, you know, informing themselves. It's also about communication, which is quite interesting. So yeah, it was it was, it was was great, but it was looking at those two different things. It was about how do we communicate veganism and how do we, you know, come to grips and understand these really important issues and how they relate to, to our food choices. It was, it was terrific. Yeah. Really good. Yeah, Congratulations. It's like, I think it's a monumental, you. um, you know, thing of like of just accolade. Getting, a monumental accolade and getting a stamp of approval from such a red, like a, you know, a well renowned establishment is fantastic for yeah. everything you do and for the movement at large as well. Thank you. No, yeah. that's very kind. Yeah. Uh, that's very, very kind. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to lean into that one, communication, like what you said there, and that's mm-hmm. what you were you were kind of lecturing on, because like it's a tough, like even the word vegan by its very definition, it's kind of what you don't do. It's kind of, you know, by its very definition, it's kind of excluding things. And I just wondered, like, because you, you are, you know, people refer to you as vegan Jesus. You're amazing. Like you really are. What you do is, is um, it transforms a lot of people's lives. And I just wondered what, um, how do you go about communing people and what have, communicating with people and what have you learned? Because Shawnee is here on the other side of the cameras and on the sound desk. He, he uses that, the metaphor, you attract a lot more um, flies flies with, you know, maple syrup than you do vinegar. Whereas, you know, and, and, and it's kind of finding the right balance between that. How it's finding right. that balance when trying to 
awaken people to the responsibility of each of our food choices, how can you do it in a way that's, you know, you've obviously found a way and I'd love to hear how you communicate it and what's your, do you have a methodology behind it? That's a really good question. I agree. That, I mean, that metaphor works nicely because it is true. I, I agree that if we want to entice people into something, we have to make it appealing. It has to be an attractive proposition. I think while presenting an argument for veganism from the perspective of, you know, this is a doom and gloom scenario. You know, if we don't change how we eat, animals are suffering and dying, the planet's dying, all of these, all of these really serious concerns. We also have to frame it in a way that invites people to feel inspired by, by the choices that's in front of them. And I think one of the things that I've always tried to emphasize in this conversation is how it's really empowering to have choices. And I think so, there are so few times in our lives where we have a choice in front of us that is so powerful in determining, you know, in determining so many different things. And I think when we, we talk about food, what I always find to be kind of frustrating is how unimportant it's often viewed, you know, from an environmental perspective or otherwise, it's always kind of pushed down in, in the pecking order, so to speak. But actually the impact that our food choices have is huge it's you know an environmental decision it's an animal ethics decision it's a personal health decision it's a social health decision related to pandemics and you know antibiotic resistance and i think that while those subjects can inherently be um, demoralizing and negative and you know pessimistic and and all of these more negative things they can actually be very positive because it's presenting us you know individually as well as collectively with something that is really really meaningful and so when i try to communicate this message effectively what i, what I try to do is i suppose encourage people to recognize that the foundations of veganism and the foundations of eating plants over animals these things are not necessarily in disalignment with what the majority of us want. I mean, we all want a more sustainable world. We all want a more ethical world, a world with less suffering, a world which is healthier, a world which uses public funds, you know, like taxpayers' funds more wisely and more efficiently. We all want these things. And actually, the amazing thing about consuming plants and veganism as a philosophy is that it encapsulates all of these things and benefits all of these different areas. And it's it's not a trade-off. You know, we don't say, hang on a minute, if I eat plants, it's better for animals, but worse for the environment, or it's better for the environment, but worse for my health, or, you know, it won't taste as nice. Th there is no trade-off involved. And I think that when we can frame it in that attractive sense um, and, and compel people to recognize that actually probably intellectually and, and philosophically, they probably are already aligned with the merits of it. And I find that to be, well, I, I've hopefully found that to be a relatively effective way of framing something which otherwise can be quite um, challenging to, to think about. Yeah, because it is quite this binary thing. You're vegan, you're not. You're into, you're not. It's really clearly divided and even... And, and talk? Yeah, yeah, sorry. Because even, I guess we've been eating a vegan diet now for about 20 years and it's something that we've found that we often frame it in the in the lens of we're not trying to convert anyone to be vegan or vegetarian. We're just trying to get you to eat more veg because it's a baby yeah. step. It's a breadcrumb along the way with which hopefully they feel better. Hopefully they have more energy. Hopefully as a result, they feel like doing more and more of it. And we find that a much easier sell to an audience at large rather than going, here, here, that must be a vegan. Well, it's well, it's easier for us personally. It's easier for us personally, uh, but I don't know. Like, I think it's in the current food environment, it's very difficult to kind of, um, 
you know, consistently apply that because there's just so much, you know, inherently as a base mammal, you know, we want foods that are higher in calories. We want foods that are processed food. You know, we're, we're naturally inclined towards these foods. So the environment isn't set up for us to be vegan, really. We've got to be intentional about our food choices. So eat more veg is, is the main, you know, what we found as a business to be an easier message than to try to convert people to veganism, even though we've been living it for 20 years and are personally massive yeah. advocates for it. Um, but but I guess my question was building on what you were saying is that um, like in terms of how you communicate it with the bit which I which which we found difficult is that there can be judgment when you're talking to someone about how empowering it is. It's so empowering and there's so much opportunity to transform the world and your food choices, politics starts in your plate. And this is a great message. But then when you kind of go, um, so what do you eat? You know, and there's an in inherent Ooh. judgment then of everything you've done in the past and people might close up then. How, how do you navigate that? Well, that's a, that's a, a tremendous question. Um, I think when we have conversations with people, we can outline complex and challenging ideas, but in a way that does remove some of those more, you know, judgmental ideas. And I think language is a big way of doing that. You know, obviously I'm vegan and, and don't eat animals, but one of the ways that I try and create some sort of inclusivity in these conversations is to use words like we and our rather than you. You know, I wouldn't say something like, you know, when you eat animals, you're causing this. I'd say, well, when we, we animals, you know, this is what we cause. And I think the way that we phrase things and the language we use creates an element of inclusivity. And it can also frame a discussion in terms of not us versus them or you versus me or whatever the, the framing might be, but just more about, you know, a, a two people or a group of people discussing a, a very complex issue, but in a way that, under, that, but in a way that honors the fact that we're all encapsulated within this system and we're all making choices within the same system. And I think that language is a big way of doing that. But I also think that we can emphasize that good people can do bad things or good people can engage in less than preferable, you know, habits because we all do, you know, no one is, you know, purely virtuous. No one is morally pure. We all engage in, in systems or we all perpetuate um, industries or sectors which have damage and cause harm somewhere, somewhere within them. Um, and I think what we can do is we can acknowledge that we live in a complex world where, as you just so correctly said, there are temptations and systems that are set up to not optimize us to make the best decisions. They're not there to optimize the easiest, or, or sorry, they're not there to optimize the most beneficial choices. They're there to optimize the most convenient choices. And I think that if we can recognize that good people can do bad things, and then we can frame that in a conversation that honors the fact that we could be talking, and most likely are talking to a very kind, compassionate, virtuous person who, like everyone else in the world that we live in, is trapped within an environment where the choices in front of us are not necessarily the ones that we would ideally like to be making. And I think that by doing that, we can create a more um, respectful discourse and a more respectful discussion. So language is a big factor, but also the way that we view the person we're talking to as well and the way that we treat them through language and through you know body language and, and through the questions we ask them and, and the tone that we use. All of these things, I, I think, can add up to a more, um, I suppose, beneficial uh, environment more generally where we can reduce some of those elements of judgment which undeniably can occur when we talk about personal you know moral and, and food decisions mm. yeah totally agree amazing and, and then in terms of like one thing that i really admire in terms of your work is that i've seen you do a number of these 
debates. Public debates, uh, if you will. But they're almost like you just stop someone in the street or welcome to sit down and have a discussion with them, which I think is so courageous of you. It's so um, virtuous, if you will, and someone that's really willing to argue their their position in the world. How do you, because I've seen you sit down and discuss with people who are really strong advocates in terms of meat eating and you will start this dialogue and I've seen you flip around many times and I'm like, how did you do that? And is there a process or does it start with you, one, trying to get them on the same page as you and then do you follow a formula process, a way with which engaging in a debate like this, albeit that everyone's come with a slightly different paradigm? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question as well. I think the way to view it is that whilst people come at it from a different, you know, maybe different cultures from times, obviously living in, in different um, families, different you know, communities. And so we may bring a, a slightly nuanced perspective on these issues. I think more broadly, the arguments that people use and the reasons why people consume animals, especially in, in the places where I normally have these conversations, are kind of broadly always going to be the same. You know, most people's excuses are always related to convenience, taste, culture. And I think that when we can start to recognize the the main pillars that that hold up the justifications we have for continuing to support this food system, it becomes a lot easier to to challenge those those different pillars and hopefully knock them down one by one. Well, could, could I even stop you always, right, could I even stop you right yeah, there and absolutely. go, what are the main pillars? Because anyone listening is going, right, mm. what, like, like, you're obviously so familiar with them, but people listening might go, what are the main pillars or what are the, what are the pillars holding up carnism? Eat, eating meat yeah. is masculine or it's whatever ma- they are. Let, 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 sorry, I'm just wondering. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a great question as well. There are, I, I think there's kind of broadly a, a few main ones. I think the most sincere ones and the ones that I think probably underpin most of them are a kind of practical ones. So ones related to convenience, accessibility, perceived, you know, issues around affordability. But then I also think there's those kind of more, as you say, as we kind of were kind of loosely talking about earlier, those more personal ones. We we may call them selfish, even though I don't think that people are inherently selfish for, for, for using them, but things related to kind of enjoyment or traditions, you know, I, will, I, you know, I won't be able to celebrate Christmas or Thanksgiving or, or whatever it may be. So there's kind of like more personal satisfaction ones as well as those practical ones. And then there's kind of more just broader social and cultural ones. And I think one of the things that, holds veganism back or has and probably less so now but certainly has historically is that it isn't part of the norm and it is still something that the majority of people don't do so we have this situation where there are perceived practical issues around veganism there are kind of those intrinsically self-motivated reasons that we have but then there's also kind of this peer pressure social pressure pillar which is related to the fact that the majority of people do it and um, you know i was raised doing this and it's legal to do it and so we kind of fall into the trap of thinking that it's not our responsibility or we shouldn't have to think about this more deeply than anyone else and if everyone else is still still supporting these systems of animal farming the why should I change? And I think that all of these, and you know, sometimes there are a few more related to, um, you know, maybe like a health issue. Maybe some people are concerned about health or whatever. But I think that more broadly, these are the pillars that kind of hold everything up. Kind of a social thing, a personal thing, and a practicality thing. And what I found when I have discussions with people is that really most people haven't ever properly scrutinized why they consume the foods that they do. 
So we may have broad reasons for it, but we've never actually had to sit down with a vegan or sit down with someone who's challenging us and rationalize the choices that we make. And for me, asking questions is something I always try to emphasize within these conversations. So whilst you know, people will know what my position is and I'll have a banner that probably, you know, outlines that I'm a vegan and I want them to talk to me about veganism. What I try to do throughout most of the conversation is not tell the person I'm speaking to how I feel, but ask them about how they feel and why they feel the way that they feel. And that why question I think is arguably the most important because we all have a basic understanding of what we believe, but often we've never thought about why we believe it you know why is our food philosophy this or our political philosophy that we have ideas of around what we believe but we never really have to rationalize them in the details in the in the way that we should and so i always ask people to 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 kind of substantiate their position why do you think eating meat is ethical or, or why do you think that animals should be considered food or why is it that we as individuals shouldn't take responsibility for the choices that we have and I think that when we start to ask these questions of why, the inconsistencies within people will will show themselves. And when I say inconsistencies, again, that isn't necessarily a negative thing because, again, we live in a world of inconsistencies. But importantly, these inconsistencies are normalized to us. And when I say inconsistencies, I mean the inconsistency of wanting to protect animals but paying for the biggest cause of animal suffering on the planet or caring about our environment but overlooking the fact that food is one of the biggest parts of the conversation related to the environment you know like i was saying earlier the foundations behind consuming plants and veganism are foundations and principles that the majority of people align with but they've never necessarily had the opportunity to recognize that and so i think a lot of the the positive effects that the conversations i have with people or why there are positive effects from them is based fundamentally on the fact that I want people to try and understand how their worldview actually already aligns with veganism. And it's not about what I believe, it's about what they believe and then how they can apply what they believe consistently through their daily choices as well. It's a, it's a, it's a clever, it's, a, it's really clever because it just personalizes it completely. Um, I, I'd love to bring it back up and kind of go one, one of the main, one of the main arguments, which I'm, I'm aware of, and I'm sure you come across it time and time again, is the argument of fitting in like that, that idea mm, of yeah. people not wanting to be socially isolated, not wanting to be standing out from the crowd. And it comes from a kind of a deeper sense of like that human need of belonging, <clears throat> And feeling part of the tribe. And I just wondered, like, in terms of a movement, they say it takes about 10% of a population or a cohort of humans. Now, give or take, this is, you'll never know exactly where the tipping point is. But I just wondered where, like, at large, is veganism expanding? Like, it seems in, like, I live in a bubble. I'm sure you live in, if, like, if we live in a bubble, you live in a complete bubble. And I just wondered, at a yeah. global scale, where are we at? Is it improving? Because I know in parts of the world where, you know, the, the lesser privileged countries in the world, they're copying the practices which the first world has always done. So I believe there's meat production and, and consumption is, is growing in these areas. But in the developed nations, is veganism on the rise? Is there less meat production? I'd love to kind of um, lean into those and understand where we're at. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is, again, such an important question. I think it's a hard one to, to necessarily know all the nuances of. I mean, as you so correctly said, although admittedly it's it's disheartening to 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 think about it globally there is a, a shift but the shift isn't necessarily in the direction we would want you know meat consumption is rising globally and it's rising for two reasons firstly because there's population growth 
But secondly, there's there's per capita consumption growth as well. And so by the year 2050, which scarily is only 27 years away, of course, and by that year 2050, it's estimated that if current trends continue as they are, we'll be consuming 70% more animal-based foods and 88% more ruminant meat, so red meat, you know, beef, uh, lamb, which obviously is you know, the most destructive food, the, the red meat that we consume, environmentally speaking. So there is a, a significant problem, which is whilst, of course, veganism is growing and awareness around plant-based foods is growing, particularly in high-income nations, globally, we're seeing a trend in the opposite direction, which is that the amount of animals we're farming is increasing. Now, I don't necessarily think that those trends will continue as kind of as, as much as we're being shown that they will, because there's a lot of discussion around what we call like peak meat. So have we reached peak meat seems to be this big discussion that happens every so often, which is have we reached the point where from this point on, we'll probably plateau and then start coming down. And I think that there will be a, a, a kind of a, a slow process that continues probably for the next few years at least. But then hopefully as veganism begins to increase substantially and awareness around the need to shift away from this current food system continues to increase, I think the progress will speed up and it'll be more like a snowball effect. And we are still, even though it seems kind of crazy to think about it, we are still the early adopters in this movement. I mean, you two, particularly, you know, the amount of years that you've been consuming plant-based diets and, you know, pushing this message, you guys were very much early adopters. But even now, people are still kind of within those early adopter cycles. So I think it will increase. But at the moment, we have a situation where globally, the, the picture is probably a little bit more bleak than we would like, to put it lightly. But there, there is a flip side, which is that even though meat consumption is rising in kind of lower income nations, disproportionately, the most negative impact is still coming from high income nations. So it's people in Australia, the US, the UK, the EU. It's people in these areas who are causing the majority of the harm from an animal perspective and, of course, an environmental perspective. So whilst there may be trends which are showing globally things are increasing, a lot of that increase is actually just trying to meet the demand or the consumption that we already have. So what this means is that disproportionately, the impact we have is greater in higher income nations. But the flip side to that is the positive benefit of us changing is also disproportionately higher. So that provides us with, provides us with even more of an incentive to think about you know, where we are in high income nations, because actually the impact we can have is greater than people in in um, in lower income nations who are potentially starting to consume more animal products, but still aren't at the level that that we've been at for, for decades now. So it is it is a relatively bleak picture, but the flip side is changes are happening in the countries where importantly those changes need to happen most. And I think when we talk about places like, you know, China and in Southeast Asia, because they are also sadly as well feeling the the worst effects of the climate crisis, or at least more severe than, than we are in, in, in Europe, there will also be more of a need for them to change. And I think that we start to see, we're starting to see that a little bit more from a policy perspective where there is a concern around the intensification of animal farming, but their conversation around plant-based diet is probably further ahead than ours was decades ago when we were intensifying animal farming. So it's not it's it's a little bit challenging, a little bit nuanced, but I think overall there's a lot of signs that there's positive change happening, but there is obviously that big bleak aspect, which is globally things are still moving in the wrong direction for now. And is that still the case in the UK, like say the UK at large, just to pick one country, is meat consumption still on the rise in the UK? I'm sure veganism is too. Yeah, well, interestingly, so red meat consumption has dropped, um, but then chicken consumption has increased. And 
the idea I think behind that is a lot of people think, well, chicken is more sustainable than beef, which it is. Um, and then they think, well, chickens are maybe less morally important than cows, which, which I would very strongly argue they're not. And so there is this there is this change happening, and and you could argue that some of that change is coming from a good place, you know, people making swaps because they think those swaps are are beneficial. But ultimately, what we're seeing, I think, is an increase in the number of chickens we're farming, which is actually an increase in the number of animals suffering overall, which is which is of course a negative thing. Um, but there are there are shifts, and actually, red meat consumption is dropping and has been dropping for for a while now, which is undeniably a, a positive thing for many reasons. Um, and veganism is increasing, but then it's it's always hard to know exactly what these percentages are and and what population studies are showing because it's hard to get a good representative analysis of of consumption habits as a whole. But there is definitely shifts moving in the in the right direction in places like the UK and uh, indeed even in Ireland. And the UK and Ireland are very similar in terms of the agricultural sectors we have. I mean, Ireland is is unbelievably, you know. Um, agriculturally orientated and it's interesting to see even positive shifts happening there especially when it's a country dominated by cattle farming and dairy farming of course yeah yeah it catalyzed us so much that we started a four acre regenerative organic farm last year which had been a dream of ours for years really to try to create a blueprint that we can show other people and other farmers that hey you can create a a business, a farm that produces local food for local people. That's all horticulture. It's all vegetables. It's fruit, you know, and um, and it's getting connecting people back to the land. So yeah, it's definitely inspired. But but that leads oh, me on. Amazing. To, yeah yeah, it's 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 one of the greatest joys that we have. But it kind of leads me on to to thinking about um like taxation because ultimately like we as individuals have a certain amount. We have our own agency. We can make food choices. We can try to influence our families, our friends. We can awaken people. We can watch documentaries. We can spread the word. We can do all sorts of different things. But ultimately what I what, what we talked about earlier was that the healthy choice is not the easy choice. The environmental best practice is not the easy choice. It take you know, it takes effort. Like one of the barriers to people changing to eating more plants or becoming vegan is that, oh, it's, it's just difficult. So I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to change my habits and whatnot. It's going to cost me more. And I just wondered from a taxation and a governmental point of view, I think there's lots of people listening and, and, and I forget it quite regularly. Like, and we know it because as vegetable growers, there aren't incentives for growing vegetables. Like there's certain grants, but it doesn't, it's not like, you know, people talk about the real cost of a hamburger and these type of things. And I'd love if you could yeah. educate us a bit more on that. Time to pay the bills now. Um, as we said, this podcast is sponsored by Vivo Barefoot Shoes. They're really, they're the only shoes we've been wearing for six years. And really, we wouldn't take someone as a sponsor unless we really believe in them. And this is a company and these are shoes that we've seen it in ourselves. Our feet have become more natural. They're stronger. They're wider. I can isolate. There's this kind of movement called toga, which sounds funny and sounds stupid, but it's where you can isolate your toes and move them kind of Individually. Individually. And through wearing shoes, at least there's even research from Vivo at universities that your feet muscles will typically improve by 60% within a number of weeks of just wearing barefoot within shoes. Within 100 days, I think it is. Days, so, and even think about it logically that in a house, the foundation or the base of the house is the really the, the most important bit which the structure sits on. And the same way we kind of, we just wear shoes without thinking about it, yet our feet are the foundation. And when you've got them in shoes that actually encourage the natural kind of movements within your feet it enhances every aspect of your anatomy yeah so uh, if anyone does want to try them out uh, Vivo Barefoot are offering a 15% off with the code HAPPYPAIR15 check them out VivoBarefoot.com full range of shoes for all the family from formal to casual to kids um, and everything in between so 15% off HAPPYPAIR15 yeah I mean you're absolutely 
absolutely right. There isn't the incentives for producing plants that there are for, for well, either growing plants, but those plants would be used for animal feed or indeed grazing animals themselves. And what we have is a, is a financially broken system where you know billions of euros and pounds, dollars as well, of course, are spent on subsidizing this system of agriculture that we have. You know, subsidies are, are taxpayers' funds that are then distributed to different industries. Um, and actually, subsidies are a great thing um, in, in theory because they help make essential goods or essential um, utilities more affordable and accessible. So that's why we have you know subsidies for, for energy production, but also for food. However, the issue we have is that we are giving all of these subsidies, or, or at least a significant percentage of them, to industries which are perpetuating the problem we're trying to trying to fix here. And you know, we hear a lot about subsidies for for fossil fuels, but there's also, of course, huge amounts of subsidies for animal farming. And for example, in in the UK, I'm sure it, it translates roughly to Ireland, but in the UK, a, a cattle farmer on average would lose about fourteen thousand pounds a year through the farming itself. However, they make a profit because the government gives them subsidies and gives them financial incentives and backs them, which means that the industry itself is, is, is a failed industry. It doesn't make money, it loses money, and it is only able to support itself because the taxpayer basically subsidizes them. And what we then have as a consequence is a flawed system where foods which should be incredibly cheap and incredibly available, which as you say would be um, organic produce, you know, berries, of course, like blueberries and strawberries, you know, healthy foods are viewed sometimes as being more expensive and are indeed even more expensive than buying a whole chicken. I mean, it, it's nonsensical that a punnet of organic blueberries would cost more than an entire chicken. But because of the farming system, because of the intensification of chicken farming, and because of the subsidies put into animal feed and, and all these different schemes, it means we have this totally financially broken system, which is just making no sense. And then obviously add to that the environmental cleanup costs, like cleaning rivers and streams is paid for by the taxpayer. In the UK, of course, we have subsidized healthcare. So when people get chronic diseases from over-consuming animal products, that then is paid for by the taxpayer. And we realize that we're squandering so much money that could be spent on protecting our environment and protecting us and our species by making healthy you know, food more affordable, more accessible, and also spreading you know, good scientific, scientifically backed nutrition evidence, nutritionally backed evidence, um, sorry, or evidence to support good nutrition is what I'm saying. So we could use this money in, in, in a much better way. And unfortunately, because of the way that these systems are ingrained because of the decades of lobbying from the animal farming industries, this system continues to persist. And, and as you say, obviously from your own experience, it, it's, it's frustrating when we as advocates are asking for farmers to transition, but they're not being financially supported in doing so. And if we were to change how we subsidize produce production and we were to change how we financially incentivize farming, it would actually open the door for a lot of animal farmers to leave their industry knowing that their livelihoods would be supported and knowing that they could still live off the land and still you know produce food which is you know obviously what they've been doing their entire lives so there is a real opportunity here for something really i suppose monumental to happen but the change wouldn't even necessarily need to be that drastic it would just be about changing how we distribute the funds that we already give to farmers and landowners 
but doing so in a way that incentivizes positive things like plant production or rewilding, for, for example. And then all of a sudden, we're starting to see really important incentives which are driving cultural and social change because individuals and consumers are not having to you know, make decisions that are going against their their convenience or, or going against their um you know what's there in front of them that's that's easy. All of a sudden we can make what is easy and convenient the preferable option. And as you so correctly stated in the question, it's just about simply changing how we fund farming and how we subsidize it. Because because it's so ironical and uh, ironical, you, I, I know I use that word ironical because it's it's so ironic the fact that um you know sustainability is so up most governments agenda particularly now with the, you know, the current climate crisis or the climate situation and ecological situation. And here we are spending huge portions on animal agriculture, which is, you know, incentivizing it, which is, you know, leading towards the health issues in many senses and, you know, species. It's, it's just, it's, it's frustrating. Anyway, Ed, if I'm to take it back up a little bit, just for anyone listening who's kind of relatively new to this and clicks on it and goes, okay, it's about vegan propaganda. Ed's written a bit, on, uh, an amazing book on is this, this is vegan propaganda. What are some basic arguments, not even arguments, but just points that might, someone might listen to this, go, I'm not into this. I'm not into this at all. I hate vegans, long haired, stinking hippies that are making me feel guilty <laughs> yeah. while I sit and eat my steak. Trying to make me feel Trying to make me feel guilty. How do you address someone that comes up to you with an argument or with a paradigm like that? How do you start a dialogue and to try to bring awareness of the autonomy, the empowerment, the agency that one has based on the simple thing of what they consume uh, to eat every day? Yeah, I suppose it relates to something I was saying earlier, which is getting people to substantiate the views that they have. And I've met people who, yeah, definitely, definitely, you know, fit that, 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 person that you were just describing or, or are that person pretty much and i think it's always about trying to get them to establish well why they think that why is it that people in society or, or certain people have this negative perspective of vegans you know is it because of a way that uh, that a vegans acted or is it because of something they've seen in the media or is it just because maybe they are really attached to eating animals because of a cultural reason or um, a more personal reason. And so that they, they feel so attached to that food choice that someone trying to get them to stop engaging in that food choice they view as this um, kind of malevolent figure potentially. So I think it's about asking people why they feel that way. You know, what, what's brought you to that conclusion? And actually that's an interesting question in, it, in itself. How have you come to that belief? Because sometimes people will say to me, um, oh, I know, I think eating plants is um, not good for your health. And I'll say, how have you come to that belief? Or for example, someone, a fisherman said to me, well, fish don't feel pain. And I said, how have you, how have you come to, to believe that? And when I asked him the question, he said, oh, well, I was told it by other, other fishermen. And that, that, was, that was a really enlightening moment for me because he had this view around fish and their ability to suffer. And it wasn't based on anything substantiated or, or, or the substantiation wasn't based on anything um, scientifically motivated. It was just based on the community of people who would be pretty much um, incentivized to believe that fish didn't feel pain. And I think that when we think about those questions of how have I come to believe this? Is it because I saw something on social media and it aligned with my belief? So I've just decided to trust that random reel that I saw that said that eating animals is better for me. Or is it because I've actually done a bit of a deep dive, looked into it, challenged my views, looked at both sides of the arguments, and then come to a rash, you know, a rational and substantiated perspective? Um, 
And it's very rare that we've actually taken the time to do that. So if it doesn't matter who they are, they can be the most anti-vegan person I've ever met or someone who's very, you know, on board with veganism. I always try just to ask them the same same kind of questions, which is just, why do you think that? Have you ever have you ever considered the other side? And um, how did you come to that belief? You know, what what was the motivation there? Um, because I think fundamentally, even the most hesitant people are some of the people I have the most, I suppose, inspiring conversations with. And when I say inspiring, I mean personally inspiring for me. Can you give us an example really of one rewarding. of those? Because I've, I've seen some of these and they're remarkable. Just even someone that stands out that you go, oh my God, I had this guy come up with me and he was literally foaming at the mouth with his disdain for me and what I represented. Yeah, the, a, a couple spring to mind. Um, I had a, a conversation, this was years ago in Portland, and we were doing like an outreach event outside promoting veganism. And, and this, this gentleman had, had, had stopped alongside and um, had like a PA system. He was a busker, I believe. Um, and he was talking, um, he, he was African-American. So he was talking about how he felt that our passion towards um, you know protecting suffering was being directed in the wrong direction. And, and maybe we should be using our energy to, to talk more about human issues. And I had this really great conversation with him where by the end of it, we were able to reach commonality, which is that all of these issues are important and all of these issues need to be addressed. And it was really wonderful to have someone who at the beginning was really, I think, confused is probably the word as to why we were talking about the issues we were talking about and the other issues. And by the end of that, even though it started off maybe in a situation where it could have gone in, in, a, in a very bad direction or it could have been judgmental, it could have been hostile, we actually reached a lot of commonality and ended up agreeing with one another. And he became very much on board with with why we were there. Um, but I've also had, I'd had a conversation where, you know, because when I go to universities, I'll have situations where um, people will stop and they'll listen for maybe an hour or so before they sit down. You know, they'll really soak in the conversations, listen to everything I'm saying to other people, and then they'll build up the confidence to sit down. And I had a conversation with someone in uh, in Texas who had been listening for a while and he sat down and he was just not on board with veganism at all. Um, he, he was, you know, saying, I, I'm not interested, or he was saying things like, you know, I just don't think I should really care, or it's not about, you know, I won't change anything. All of these things, the, the classics that we might hear. Um, but over a period of time, what we were able to establish is that he didn't even feel that his beliefs were that strong. And over time, just through asking questions, and, and, and nothing ever went hostile, nothing ever went judgmental, just through asking questions, by the end of it, it, it kind of came to this resolution where he basically admitted, yeah, I, I, you know, you're right, and those arguments aren't good arguments. And, and so it is interesting how when you spend a little bit of time with someone, 15, 20 minutes, that might, all be, that might be all that it takes sometimes. You can have someone who's very much against it at the beginning, but then just after a very brief interaction can really come around to it. And I think one of the most important things that we as vegans can do is just present ourselves well. And what I mean by present ourselves is not fulfill a stereotype that someone has. I mean, I've got, I've, I've kind of got longish hair, so that stereotype is fulfilled. But outside of that, just from a, a, a characteristic perspective, if people think that vegans are malevolent or um, judgmental or forceful or preachy, just by not being those things, we are immediately disarming their impression of veganism and we're immediately making them view veganism more positively. And we might not even be giving them the best arguments. We might not be, you know, going off on these these big, long uh, monologues, you know, espousing the benefits of veganism. We might just simply be 
not fulfilling the negative expectation they have of us. And that can be one of the most powerful things we can do is just be a relatable, nice, respectful person. And that doesn't mean that we can't have difficult conversations or we can't ask tough questions or that we don't have to, you know, even debate this conversation. We can do those things, but do so in a way that isn't perpetuating some of the more negative aspects or negative attributes that people believe that vegans have. And for me, that has always been one of the most effective things I've found within my advocacy is if I can just shake someone's hand, ask them what their name is, spend a couple of minutes just personalizing our relationship, getting to know one another, and then asking them questions in a, in a sincere, honest way, respectfully, and then engage with them on a human level rather than a on a on a level of us versus them or on a level where we're foes or opponents but just just merely engage as two humans having a constructive dialogue i think that that can go very very far in in actually convincing someone of what it is we want to convince them of so it's nearly like trying to find common ground first and within common ground we can we can see each other's paradigm and from there we can learn to dance or bridge and i guess it bridge into unison and yeah. i guess and i guess in a sense it's absolutely it's planting a seed because I, I'm not sure if you follow up with these people and see have they changed their diet or not. But ultimately, it's planting a seed and kind of, you know, the the, the plant will grow when the the surroundings and the the, the environment is fertile. And um, I'd I'd love to I'd love to move into so you've been in this space like and you really have been at the front of this space you know for a lot a, a, a decent time. And I'd love to know where are the big levers? Like, because ultimately, as you said at the start, you said that all of us want to live more compassionately. We want to be kinder. We want to be more environmentally conscious. Like, all we all want the same things. And sometimes I wonder if that word vegan is, like it creates that complete binary, that black and white, the real division, something for people to fight against. But, but I wonder where are the big levers with getting people to eat less animals and eat more plants and come round because... There is a, it can catalyze, like in our own lives, it was one of the greatest positive catalysts in our lives to to give up eating animals and become a vegan plant-based person. Wow. I mean, I suppose that, that that is almost the most important question that we as advocates can ask ourselves. I, I mean, the word vegan has some negative connotations, but I'm always very proud of it in a way. I, I never shy away from from owning it. And I think that there is an opportunity to to own it in a way that almost reclaims it from some of these these more negative um, views around it. And I think that it's it's empowering to have um, a word or empowering to have a philosophy that that is um, de defined in, it, in in what it stands for, but defined in a way that it doesn't need to be alienating. And I think that. The question of how we maybe bridge those 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 gaps or or, or do so in, in the way you're describing, I suppose, comes down to the person we're engaging with, the environment that they're in. And I think as advocates, one of the most important things we can be is is flexible. Um, the way that we communicate with a, with a close friend will probably be different to the way we communicate with a complete stranger, or you know, vice versa, or with a family member versus you know a husband or a wife. Oh, sorry, like a parent compared to a husband or a wife. And I think that the way that we engage with people will always vary and will always be different dependent on, on these nuances and the different environments we're in. And as a consequence, the way that we present veganism, the way that we present the philosophies and, and the merits of it will, will probably vary as well. You know, with, with a close loved one, it may be the case that we 
cook them some vegan food. We we buy in some vegan alternatives. We we make them a coffee and use oat milk, and we and we just build up to things by introducing them to the the joy of veganism through food, through um, the community around it, through the culture around it, through the celebration of of different ingredients. Things like that can work wonderfully if if we're living with someone or if we're cooking for our parents. And so sometimes the 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 battleground, which seems like a big word, but the, the battleground around it can be on the dinner table, not through the verbalization, but just through the 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 showing of the food, the the demonstration of the cuisine. I think things like that that can work wonders. But then obviously if we are talking to, to a stranger in the street or we end up with, you know, in a debate with a colleague or someone at work, then of course the the environment around that will be slightly different and it will be more about answering questions or asking questions and addressing maybe fallacies and, and common misconceptions. So a lot of the the way to do that effectively, I think, is just through education. You know, we as advocates need to be the most informed. We need to have the answers because if we don't, we can't expect other people to have them. So one of the simplest things we can do is just have a range of responses prepared for, you know, the the majority of the main arguments there are. So protein calcium vitamin b12 you know um, you know animal welfare and humane farming practices just kind of the, the the common things that are brought up when we talk about veganism you know what would we say if a stranger asked us those questions i think that can be that can make things easier as well because one of the things i think can happen when you know engage in a debate with someone is if they say something you don't know how to respond to your immediate reaction is to become defensive and often that defensive position is where the judgment comes out or the hostility or where that interpersonal relationship can break down so if we're confident in our views and can present them in, in a way that's informed and in a way that you know we feel um does justice to the question being asked we'll feel more confident and, and just be able to respond in, in a more neutral way because we won't feel like we need to be defensive because we're confident in the responses that we have and in the education that we've we've given ourselves. So I think there are a few different ways of looking at it, but it's not always going to be a one-size-fits-all affair. It's about being flexible and, and reading the room and reading the situation and being adaptable based on the needs of the person we're talking to. Yes, great answer, advice. great answer. There's, can I just ask one? It was, it was on, there's that documentary on Netflix, it's called Kiss the Ground, I believe it's called, or Kiss the Earth. And it's it's a big advocate of, of regenerative farming, which I'm I'm all for, except it's a big anim, uh, advocate for regenerative animal agriculture in terms of the farming practice and that. And I just wondered about that because you'll often get people going, oh, well, I eat, I eat regeneratively grown Grass-fed grass beef. beef. And I know from talking to George Mambio, he was all saying that, well, this is the worst environmental impact. But I just wondered, what are your thoughts on that? Or what, what argument would you give to people in terms of that? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the foundations, the philosophy around regenerative farming is sound in the sense of it's a way of farming that's supposed to store carbon in the, in the ground, increase biodiversity, you know, reduce reliance on pesticides, insecticides, um, on, on certain fertilizers. So the the broad philosophy behind it is obviously um, a good thing, but the actual implementation of that is where things become become tricky. You know, firstly that there are no legal um, guidelines around what's regenerative. If you go into a supermarket, there is no such thing as regenerative red meat in the supermarket. You know, a butcher might promote regenerative red meat, but what 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 are they actually selling you apart from maybe something that comes from a grass-fed farming system? And and what makes that regenerative compared to the grass-fed farming, you know, that isn't labeled as regenerative? 
So I think it's tricky because the word itself, it, it's it's become a bit of a sustainability buzzword within the farming community. So we don't necessarily know what we're buying into, but the philosophy behind it, what, what it espouses is sound. But the problem is it's sound when applied to plant farming, but it actually overlooks the harms that are found in animal farming. Because what, as George Monbiot, as you, as you so rightly said then, he's, he's a, a huge... Um, critic of this because when you look at regenerative systems these kind of more extensive pasture-based systems you see certain environmental harms that are perpetuated like the land use the inefficiency and there are certain farms that are promoted as being regenerative that use two and a half times more land than more conventional beef farms and that's two and a half times more land that we're no longer using or are no longer are able to use for rewilding or for increasing biodiversity or for, for growing food in a more efficient manner. And so whilst I think that producing food in a way that stores carbon increases biodiversity and reduces reliance on the harmful chemicals that we use is a good thing, the problem is when we turn our attention to animal farming, it doesn't even necessarily you know, tick the, the boxes that it says it's trying to because... As soon as we're grazing animals, we're increasing, we're decreasing, sorry, the capacity to increase biodiversity, and we're increasing the greenhouse gas emissions that our farming system produces. You know, even if you can graze animals and, and doing so stores some carbon into the soil through the grazing systems, they are still net contributors to the problem. They're still producing more methane than is being offset through the carbon being stored. So it, it just it just doesn't work when we talk about animal farming. It, it would actually cause more problems. You know, if, if we farm, as we currently do, about 1 to 1.2 billion land animals uh, or kill 1 to 1.2 billion land animals in the UK every single year, and the majority of those are intensively factory farmed, what would it look like if we suddenly swapped to a system where we get all our meat from regenerative farming? I mean, half of the landmass of the UK is used just to produce animal products. In, in Ireland, I think it's like 60% or something. And that's not even using a regenerative system. That's using mainly an intensive factory farming system. So, so what happens now if all of these animals are given more land to, to roam around? It, it, it's just not practical or possible. And then even from an affordability perspective, the most expensive food you could buy in a supermarket would be this extensive grass-fed pasture-based system of, of farming. It's the most financially inefficient as well as land inefficient. And so if we're trying to advocate a food system that's more accessible and more affordable, advocating for regenerative beef would be the opposite of that. Because if we were to have a farming system which only had regenerative beef, for example, the vast majority of people wouldn't even be able to afford it. So there is a way that we can make food more affordable, more accessible, and more sustainable. And it's about moving towards regenerative plant farming, just like you guys are doing. It's about how can we produce food efficiently, but also efficiently in a way that also honors the needs of our planet, which is not to overpollute, not to use loads of chemicals when we don't need to. And plant farming allows us to do all of these things together and also not have to worry about all the problems related to animal farming at the same time. So the logic behind it, the philosophy that underpins it is logical. But the problem is the animal farming community are weaponizing the logical aspects behind it to try and encourage consumers to overlook the fundamentally and inherent negative things that are intrinsic within animal farming. Yeah, it makes total sense what you're saying. Uh, in terms of then moving on to the uh, just another aspect or an argument against eating animals is just the the kind of proliferation of antibiotics or antibiotic usage in terms of these intense factory farms. Um, and many people aren't aware of that. I wonder if we could talk briefly about that or if you talk briefly about that, just how 
how widespread and how not only is it in the food that people in the animal food that people are consuming, but it's also in our environment. Yeah, you the most your most viewed video on YouTube is the one uh, about that you put out about there's something worse than coronavirus and it was the start of COVID. And it was a wonderful video bringing, bringing um, you know, the focus on antibiotic resistance, which I thought was fantastic. Yeah, I mean, the the concerns around antibiotic resistance are, are, are really terrifying. I mean, globally, the majority of the world's antibiotics are given to farmed animals. Some estimates say that about 80% of the world's antibiotics are given to farmed animals. And the real travesty in all of that is, of course, that this is a squandering of our antibiotics, where we're using antibiotics because it allows us to farm animals in the most horrendous ways without worrying about them becoming so diseased that they either can't be slaughtered for meat or, or they die too soon. So we have a situation where the miracle of modern medicine is being used to keep farmed animals alive just long enough so that we can then slaughter them and eat them. Of, of course, antibiotics, you know, as you say, get into our environment, um, and can cause harm to animals in our environment. But also there's the issue of, of resistance where bacteria become resistant to our antibiotics. And if resistant bacteria then is spread um, and we have no antibiotics to defend ourselves against them, all of a sudden we have a situation where bacteria that we've been able to to treat without really much consideration for the past you know, number of decades will all of a sudden become life-threatening. And it's estimated that, again, by the year 2050, so again, only 27 years away, the number of people that will be dying from antibiotic resistance will be equivalent to the number of people who die from cancer every year currently. So we're looking at somewhere around 10 million people a year. So that's a really frightening number in that sense, because what we have then is a situation where we are not leaning into a world where we are reducing the prevalence of 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 diseases and illnesses but leaning into a world which is causing more of them perpetuating more of them to emerge you know things like tuberculosis or sexually transmitted diseases things that we really haven't been so concerned about in in high income nations will all of a sudden become killers um, hip replacement surgery, dental treatments, just anything where we've taken antibiotics to protect ourselves, if those antibiotics are no longer usable, it presents us with a very frightening vision of the future. And what we have now is this vision of the future being, well, being brought closer to us as a or because of the farming of animals. And there's a certain antibiotics which we, are, which we consider the last line of defense. These are the antibiotics that we give people when all of our antibiotics have failed. And, and we're even using those antibiotics in chicken farming and in pig farming. So it's not as if we're using just penicillin or just certain antibiotics. We're using even the, the last line defense antibiotics. Um, and it comes down to, to a lot of deregulation. It comes down to increased need for, in, for efficiency. All of these problems, which are just perpetuating again, this, this other issue related to our food choices, which is how it's actually going to impact our own species in, in you know, just two, three decades time. Um, and I think from just from a purely selfish perspective, r remove the animals from the equation, remove the environmental problems, even though, of course, they affect us. Just remove those from it and just think solely about yourself as an individual and think about 27 years from now, the concern might be that you couldn't have dental treatment or couldn't have a hip, hip replacement surgery, or if you got tuberculosis or, or whatever it might be, you couldn't get treatment for that. I, I think that's terrifying because it shows that society is regressing we're going back to how we were 150 years ago whereas medicine is supposed to be progressive we're supposed to find ways to treat diseases and treat illnesses 
but actually animal farming may take us back 150 years. Uh, that that obviously is a relatively concerning um, thought to have. Mm, another good argument. Another good reason for it. Yes, for quite sure. right. Uh, so to try to kind of bring it round to kind of a positive spin, just for any listener to land this plane, to, to land this plane, or to land this vehicle, or this propaganda. Uh, which we are all espousing. Um, uh, uh, like, for anyone listening, obviously, you know, we've been encouraging people to eat more veg or to, to move more towards a plant-based diet. Can you talk about it from the positive aspect as to why one might consider eating more plant-based foods or becoming vegan? Yeah, I think right at the beginning or towards the beginning, um, you know, I mentioned that there are so few opportunities we have to make a choice and that choice be so powerful. And I think that it's really empowering to recognize that actually when we make simple swaps and when we make decisions every day to consume plants over animals, it's not just the the personal satisfaction we feel, you know, the pride we feel in ourselves because, you know, we should feel prideful when we make a positive decision. We should feel um, emboldened and, and empowered and we, sh we should feel we should feel pleased in ourselves when we go, hang on a minute, you know, I made this decision today and I'm, I, you know, I'm going to make it tomorrow and then the next day. And this decision is having an influence that is overwhelmingly positive, not just for myself, but for, you know, pretty much every life on this planet, you know, without, without going into exaggeration, you know, when we think about animal suffering, when we think about the environmental crisis, when we think about pandemic risk from bird flus and swine flu viruses and antibiotic resistance and all of this, it's not really a, uh, an exaggeration to say that our food choices hasn't have an impact on every being on this planet because that's kind of the situation we have and that presents us with a really empowering opportunity to make a positive difference in all of these different areas with just one choice just just the same choice every day to consume plants over animals helps us tackle and reduce the severity of all of those things that, that i just mentioned and we've been discussing throughout this podcast to me that's incredibly positive and it's also positive to think about it from the perspective of, um, I suppose, citizen power. And what I mean by that is any societal progress that has happened throughout history has happened because people within societies have recognized something that is wrong and have taken a stand against that. And we have a really powerful opportunity in front of us today to make a choice which allows us to take a stand and to fundamentally be on the right side of, of history, hopefully, you know, things go in the direction we hope. You know, we can say to ourselves in 30, 40, 50 years time, I became aware of these issues and I did the right thing in this moment by changing how I consume food. And in doing so, I was a part of the solution to so many of these problems. Underlying that is obviously the negative aspects, you know, the, the recognition that there is harm caused by our food choices. But if we can frame that in a positive way so that when we go into the supermarket, we don't view, you know, buying a tin of chickpeas as a, as a, as, as a personal hardship, but instead view buying that tin of chickpeas over, you know, a, a carton of chicken breast, for example, we view that as, as a, as a action that we should feel pride over. And that when we take that home and we cook it, and we make a delicious sweet potato and chickpea stew on a bed of, you know, rice and we eat that. We don't just eat it because it tastes nice, but we feel pride in ourselves because we know that through eating that, even if it seems like a small inconsequential action, through doing that, we've signaled through our choices and through the, the purchasing power that we have that we want a different world that actually considers all of these really important issues and works to address them. 
And I think for me, that's one of the things I've always found most inspiring about this is seeing the joy that vegans often espouse, you know, meeting vegans at vegan festivals, talking to people who make those changes and just listening to them talk about how happy they feel about themselves, how, you know, how I use that word proud or how much pride they have around that choice. And to me, that's, that's a wonderful thing to think about because it's about having autonomy. It's about having agency. And it's about saying that actually I, as an individual can bring about significant change because fundamentally the only thing that ever has throughout history are individuals. It's always been individuals forming collectives, communities, and then through that societal change, and we can be a part of that today and tomorrow and the day after just by making that simple swap to plants over animals. Ed Winters, you're brilliant. Very inspiring. Thank you. Lovely, lovely. Um, how's your book done? So uh, for anyone listening, Ed released a book two years ago, I believe. I remember getting a copy um, and it's called This is Vegan Propaganda. And I heard you talk International about International bestseller. And I heard you talk about yes. just even with your publisher when the title landed with you and you were kind of an advocate for it in with your publisher There was kind of a bit of friction with it. And I think the title is fabulous because it really provokes intrigue questions like, is it? Is it not? What's the... What's the spin on it? Yeah, that's, it's very kind of you to say. I mean, it's been great. So yeah, it was published. It was a year and a half ago now. It's 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 wild to think that how how quickly it goes. I mean, obviously you both know as well. Been been uh, been authors as well. And I think I don't know if you have found this in your experience, but um, titles are always tricky. I always struggle with titles, and I thought, oh, that a book title is going to be one of the hardest hardest things to to decide on. And as you say, yeah, the publisher and I were going back on back and forth a little bit, and we. We kind of settled on this this vegan propaganda, this phrase vegan propaganda, and we thought, well, how are we going to make that a title for a pro-vegan book? Um, and I think we've done it in a, in a, in a, in a I, I really like it. I was really, really happy with the title because I think it's it's kind of cheeky and playful and it's a little bit disarming. And um, we kind of took the, the covers kind of almost uh, a kind of a Soviet-era propaganda poster, but with like a, a kind of a bold green, you know, because it's vegan and environmental and all of these things. Um, but it's done really well and people seem to really like it. Um, and it, it, it's been one of the most, I mean, I, mean, I, I guess you'll, you'll probably both be aware and maybe you'll feel the same, but there's something about a book that it, it just really gives you the opportunity to, to convey how you feel about something and to really put into words, literally, of course, just the the passion you have around around the issue. So for me, writing this book was was wonderful, and it's been very pleasing to see the the positive reception it's received. Ed Winters, you're brilliant. I love your work and really admire your ability to articulate it. So you're an, you're a wonderful communicator. You really are very considerate. Oh, thank you. Great yeah, job. Great. Oh, that was kind. Thank you. Great job. You oh, I appreciate great questions. Yeah, come visit yeah, anytime. Come hang out. We've uh... yeah, we'd love to invite you. We'd love to invite you. I've got a spare room. You're more than welcome to come stay. And we've got a you thank know, you. I'd love you to come see the farm and I don't know, hang out and whatnot. So I'd anyway. love that. Let Let's definitely do that. I know that we we weren't able to make it happen because I was only in Dublin so briefly earlier this year. But let's let's a hundred percent do that. I've heard so many great things about about your about your restaurant as well. So I I would love to just try your food, but love to visit the farm for sure. That would yeah, be very exciting. Yeah, yeah great. Well, I'll connect in afterwards and send yeah. on our numbers and all that. Yeah. But uh, keep up the amazing work. Thanks so much yeah, for your really. time. Thanks a million. We look forward to hanging out in person. Yeah. yeah, likewise. Thanks thanks for all your work as well. It's, you know, you, you guys um, have done so much and the the way that you normalize plant-based food and the way that you've had such an impact in Ireland as well as globally, of course, I think is, is just remarkable. So um, thank you for everything you've done to, to normalize eating plants and normalize this message as well. Because, you know, food is so important and um, 
yeah, it, I'm just grateful for people like yourselves who are promoting plant-based food and, and the joys that it can bring as well. So yeah, awesome. Thanks. And uh, can't wait to meet you both in person one day. Yeah, looking forward to it. You're Thanks, a star. Thanks again. Awesome. Thanks yeah. so much. Bye. Great job. Thank Thanks you. for that. Wonderful. Really appreciate it.